Well, while we're waiting for people, we could maybe read out Genesis 1. And just start us for our discussion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with whom the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the, earth, fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over, lives, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in his creation. Now I wanted us to start with the narrative of Genesis 1. Rather than going straight to the text about the creation of humankind, male and female, I want us to think about that text against the backdrop of the creation narrative because I don't believe it will be properly understood unless we see it against God's greater work within the creation. What you will have noticed, even as we are reading this passage, is that it's a deeply literally, it's a literary structured narrative. It's not just a sequence of events, that, um, it's not just about what happened, It's about the structure of what happened, about the relationships between these events within um, this creation account. And that literary structure reveals something about the reality itself, that the creation is structured analogically and typologically, that these are not detached entities filling up this, God creates this great container of the heavens and the earth and then fills it up with odd things that he rummages around within his imagination and creates all these different entities and populates reality with it. It's far more richer than that. And perhaps one of the best ways to think about is returning to that analogy I had earlier of a dance, that God is choreographing this great dance of reality. And it's not surprising that it begins in the way that it does. And it has as an emphasis time and entities moving within time. If you look at the creation of the first day, the creation of the light, it's very easy to think of that light as just an object that's placed within the heavens. It's not just an object placed within the heavens. It's a condition, the condition of the day. It's a temporal state that alternates with night. And so what you have, as it were, is God striking up the beat of the creation, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. And that's the beat that will be played out throughout this creation account. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, and all these different accounts, all these different days have that pattern beneath them. And the larger pattern is one of a week, a week of work that God's creation sets the pattern for human activity, a work week. And so six days shall you labor and do all your work. On the seventh day, You rest because God rested from his labor on the seventh day. And so God creates this pattern through his creation, a pattern that's continued in providence and continued in the life of his people. This literary structure is significant in disclosing a world that has been meaningfully structured by God. Not just a world that 
is filled with entities with no meaningful relationship to each other. Creation is best imagined as this dance in which we have to find our place. God has established it and related us to other entities within it. The creation begins with two key problems. The earth was formless and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep. So those two key problems, the formlessness and the voidness of the creation, are answered in two sets of three days. The first three days dealing with the formlessness, the lack of structure and the lack of uh, pattern or uh, um, a form for the reality. And then the second three days, the lack of entities to fill the void, the lack of a population and a filling within that. And so it breaks down into two three sets of three days that can loosely be modeled on, mapped onto each other as well. So the first three days are the days of the creation of the division between light and dark, day and night, the creation of the division between the waters above and the waters beneath, the formation of the firmament. The next day, the third day, is the creation of the division between the earth and the seas, and then the creation of the vegetation on the land. The second three days are days of filling that can loosely be related to each of those structures of formation. So the fourth day relates to the lights in the heavens. The division between the day and the night is mapped out onto the lights that are placed in the firmament. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the, on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. So that separation created on the first day is mapped onto the fourth day with the creation of these lights to um, fill out that. And not just to create the division between day and night, but between seasons, between times and between years, these larger structures of time are also mapped on to the reality. And so there's a sort of more complicated beat that's established at this point. There's this complexification of the fundamental pattern that's established on the first day. The fifth day, you have the waters above and waters beneath. You have the Birds flying across the firmament above, and then the, um, you have the sea creatures placed within the waters beneath. Now, there's something to notice about these creatures. Whereas God created the stars on the fourth day and populated the heavens, he does not fully populate the seas. Rather, he gives the sea creatures and the birds of the air the power to multiply. And so the creation is not just a completed entity, it's something that will be continued into the work of providence. Creation bleeds into providence and they're related together as God gives his creation the power to perpetuate his creation patterns. Day three, the separation of the earth, the creation of the dry land. We see the day six involves the creation of the beasts of the earth and the creatures of the earth. And then in the second act of creation, the creation of humanity. Now, if you read through this account, one of the things you will notice is that there are three distinct sorts of creation activities. The first day, most prominently, you see God's work of authoritative speech. That God says, and it is so, that God declares, let there be light, and there is light. 
on the second day, we see a different sort of creator activity. God made the firmament. There's a sort of a more hands-on image here, the formation of something. And then on the later days, the days of filling particularly, we see God empowering his creation to bring forth realities. Let the earth bring forth, etc. And so there are three different types of creation here that I think we would not be mistaken to see a Trinitarian um, theme here. And all of these come together. They're not distinct acts that are a sort of um, distribution of labor. Rather, they unite within single acts. So man is formed of the dust of, of the clay, breathed into the breath of life, this animating power, and God says, let us make man in, his ima- in our image. And so all of these things come together. The three forms of creation are integrated and inseparable. The establishment of time and its structure is prominent within this text. And so I've already mentioned the setting up of that original beat of the creation. But if you notice, the central day of the, of the seven is also concerned with time. The division of the day of, and the night, the setting apart of the years and the seasons and the times established by the sun, moon and stars. And so these aren't just realities that are concerned with the first day, but the fourth day too. And the seventh day, likewise, it's a setting apart of a particular day at the climax of that sequence, as a day set apart from that sequence, so you have the two th- sets of three days, and then you have this day set apart, this capstone day, when you look back and the whole of the creation is opened up. And in the light of that, a judgment is made that it is good and there is rest within that. And so the establishment of time and its structure is essential to this story. That it's not just this series of events that occurred back then, but it's this setting up of the patterns and the times that will continue. The patterns and the times that we are continuing now, the patterns of day and night, the patterns of the week, and the patterns of the years and the months and the seasons. And so God's world is a world that is temporarily structured. It has these repeating rhythms and times, but it also has a forward momentum. So if you see the creation of the animals, the animals are given this power to multiply and to fill, to fill the seas. Now, the seas aren't yet filled. There's a sense that this creation is pushing forward into the work of providence. And more generally, this is one of the things that you see in Scripture. The great creation psalms, for instance, very often merge together creation and providence because these are not detached realities. God's creation is something about, it also teaching us about the structure of reality that is worked out and continued through his providence and sustained by that means. The creation work is unfinished in various respects. Another one of these respects in which it's unfinished, not just the population of the earth with the animals and the seas, but the naming. Naming only occurs on the first three days. The creatures of the later days are not yet named. And so there's a task to be done then. There's a sense of a creation that is not yet finished. It's prepared, and God has established these patterns. God has set these things in motion. God is sustaining them by his power, and God is animating his creation to continue these things. But there's also some movement towards the future. There's some expectation. 
And these movements are suggested even within the daily rhythms, the day and night, the movement from evening to morning, from darkness to light. There's a movement from the original creational structure of darkness being over the face of the deep, of this lack of order and this voidness, to the light and the filling and the forming. And we have that on each day. And we also have it more generally throughout these patterns of the years and through the patterns of history more generally. And so these overlayered structures of time are crucially important to understanding what's taking place in Genesis 1. And as we get into Genesis 2, we'll see even more of this. The creation work is unfinished in these respects of certain tasks being left to to be done, but also in the sense of time pushing us forward. Specific elements of the creation are declared good in themselves. So God, when he speaks about the creation, after his creation activities, on a number of occasions, God declares, he sees, he judges, and he declares that it is good. And these are over particular acts of creation, not over the creation as a whole. That happens at the end of God's creation work, where he steps back, as it were, and views the complete canvas and declares that it is very good. But at various stages of the creation, he looks at particular things and says that that's good. In itself, that particular part of the creation is good. And so things are good in their totality and in their relations, but also good in their particularity. And not just in their collective reality. The creation of male and female. One of the things that you'll see in the creation of male and female is there already is some sort of structure that's similar to the creation of male and female that appears earlier, which is the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars to rule the heavens. The male and female are set within the earth as its rulers. The sun and the moon and the stars are set within the heavens. And so you have different layers of reality. And when we think about, for instance, Abraham's children being multiplied like the stars in the heavens, that's saying something about the connection between the rule on earth and the rule in the heavens. And we see more generally in scripture and within human societies more generally, there's this recognition of a mapping of these realities onto each other, a poetic symmetry or a resonance between these realities. So when Joseph talks about his dream to Jacob, his father, he talks about the sun, moon and the 11 stars bearing down. And Jacob knows the sun, he's the sun and his wife is the moon and the 11 um, stars are his children. There is a pattern there that is, is quite commonsensical to many people within a society that thinks of these things as mapped onto a world that is analogical, a world that is metaphorical, and a world where these things are mapped onto each other within a great dance. And you see within the first three creation days, for instance, these binary pairs that structure total reality between themselves. So day and night structure that reality of time, of this evening and this morning, this period of time is completely framed, not just by division and our dichotomy, but by an interplay between these things. Same thing with the heavens, the formation of the heaven as the firmament division and the waters above and beneath. These waters are related to each other and we don't see them being fully related until later on in the narrative. Um, in Genesis 2, they've, there's not yet been rain, but there's a water cycle and these sorts of things that express something of the communion between heaven and earth. The first communion that we see within, between heaven and earth is the breathing into man of the breath of life, perhaps. Um, this 
union together of the breath and of the earth and of these different elements of reality. Another thing to notice is that, for instance, if you read the Psalms, you have the sun and the bridegroom being connected, and the sun in the heavens, and the bridegroom, and the tabernacle, all these realities are mapped onto each other because we live in a world that is charged with meaning, a world that is a dance that we find our place within. And if you talk in, to people in many different societies, you'll see this consistent recognition, for instance, of the connection between women and the moon. And there's a pattern there, and we see this within scripture as well. The image of God and the meaning of the term Adam is another thing to pay attention to here. When we come to this text and we come to this description of the creation of humanity from a very modern perspective, we think of, for instance, human beings as primarily individuals. So God created individuals in his own image. In the image of God, he created these different individuals, a male and female, he created them this sense of just our plurality in that sense. Whereas there's something more going on here. There's something about the structure of humanity itself. And we see that in terms of the plurality and the singularity of the creation that takes place. There's a difference between a number of different ways that we can have purchase upon the reality of humanity. We can think about humanity as a kind, humankind, we can think about humanity as a host, the multitude of people within the world that fill the, the um, world and its various environments. Or we can also think of humanity as a race, male and female, descended um, from original parents and growing out and diversifying into many tribes, tongues, peoples and languages and all these multiple societies within the world, this great family tree of humanity. And these are all different ways of looking at humanity. But recognizing that humanity is not just a set of detached individuals that have something in common, but we are structured on, the, on a deeper level. We have a common nature, we have a common origin, and we have a common structure, this male and female structure to reality. There's a, a magnetic polarity to the human race. That interplay of male and female is part of the formation of human reality. That all human societies are shaped around this polarity of male and female. This interplay, just as the earth and the seas are related, and the um, evening and the morning are related, and the waters above and the waters beneath are related, there's a dancing pair of male and female within God's creation. And we have our own place within this larger structure, this larger choreography. There's a threefold parallelism here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there's a progression. And so the first act is the creation of humankind. The second act, I believe, is the creation of a specific human person, this progenitor of us, of us all, that we are created in Adam. And we find this within Genesis, but also more generally in Scripture, that Christ comes in the likeness of Adam, that this head of a humanity, the one from whom everyone else arises. And so there's a grammar to the human race, not just the creation of a multitude of individuals, but the creation of a grammatical whole, as it were, 
framed in their totality by the male and female, framed in terms of the race, this, um, as a race, as we um, go through generation after generation, as we're begotten and we are born into the structure of male and female and we are begotten by our parents and we beget children in turn, as generative persons. But then we're also a kind, a type of being that God has created in the world with a particular purpose. And that humankind is not just to be thought of as the human individual, but the human race, the human, the human species as a whole. And often if we're thinking about it just in terms of the hum, human individual, what we're doing is we're abstracting from the reality of male and female. So that is not made integral to what God has created. But part of what God has created as the representation or as his, um, as his image and likeness is the fact that we are male and female. Now we'll get into this a bit more in a moment, but this differentiation between male and female is part of the structuring of reality in order that we might be the image of God. The concept of the image of God is particularly focused upon our dominion within the world, I believe. The image of God is a concept that is related to man's royal role within the world as man is placed within the world as God's representative of his rule, his creative authority within his creation, as those who continue, who represent, who symbolize and establish and uphold what God has established at the beginning. So what is the significance of the calling that has been given to humankind? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we've talked about temporal structures within Genesis. Here's another one. We see a progression within this account from an original act of being fruitful, which leads to multiplication, which leads to filling, which leads to subduing the earth, the different places that we fill, and then which leads to dominion over its creatures. So there's a moving out into the world, a moving out that also is patterned in some ways according to God's own creative activity. So we've spoken already about the way that God answers the two problems of the original creation, its formlessness and its voidness, with this act of forming and filling, the first three days of forming, the second three days of filling. And when we're looking at the creation of humankind, humankind has a similar sort of task, the task of forming the world and the task of filling the world. And these things occur in concert, that there's an, an outworking into the world as we fill the world, as we're creators, creatures that have been formed within the world. We fill the world. And as we fill the world, we will form the world and bring out the formation that God has established in us and complexify it and glorify it and make that formation of God's world even more rich and complex and beautiful. Humanity isn't just an undifferentiated multitude then. It's shaped by a fundamental disjunction and an interplay. So the difference between male and female is not just between two detached types of individuals, but there is a charged connection between the two, a difference between them it's, has a more musical character to it a charged space, as it were, that is designed to be an expression of beauty. 
And one of the things that we'll be looking at in this course is how do we understand this reality? Very often we try and understand it in fairly prosaic terms through gender theory and these sorts of things. But human societies have generally understood that if we are to grasp the relationship between male and female, it's hard to do that without poetry, song, dance, all these characters, all these forms of purchase upon reality that stress and exhibit beauty. That that connection is a musical connection. And to understand it, we need to have categories appropriate to it, which are categories of beauty. So if we're looking at Song of Songs later on, Song of Songs is not just a book of gender theory. It's a book revealing the beauty of God's world and the beauty that is elicited and revealed and exposed through the beauty of the relationship between male and female, a relationship that is embedded within the dance of creation and is one of the ways in which we are brought into participation within that. And so as we are brought into participation, we will begin to see the dance more broadly and not just our part within it, but the parts of other entities within it, how the birds and the, um, the animals and how the architecture and the, the great um, the trees and the mountains and all these things fit into God's picture. Male and female are also akin to, as I've described, these magnetic polarities. It's a musical relation. It's also a magnetic polarity where there's a charged bond between them where each is implicated in the other and you can't, you can't separate them or treat that space between them as an empty space, just a division. It's not just a division. The relationship between male, male and female is at the root. Now, we tend to think about male and female as distinct entities often. But the fundamental reality is the bond between them, that charged relationship between them. So it's like listening to a piece of music. If you were to understand a piece of music by separating each note individually and analyzing it, the music would cease to appear. You'd lose it. In the same way with male and female, the reality of male and female is understood in that charged space between them primarily. And as they play into that space, who they are begins to emerge more clearly to us. Male and female structures society. It's part of God's way in which he forms society, not just fills it. Male and female structure society in the family. It structures society in mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and in the way that we relate more broadly as men and women. It also structures time in the movement from generation to generation. That human time is measured by this human movement from one generation to the next and a process of succession, of passing on, of being generated and generating in turn. And so we are beings that are caught within, placed within time, charged within time, people who are bearers of a legacy and those who will in our turn pass on to others. And so what we do is a moment within the music of the history of humanity that leaves its sound rings in the air even after we've gone. There's something that's passed on. The distinction between this and the sort of differences that we tend to think about in our world are very important to notice. When we talk about difference in our world, we talk about difference primarily as division and dif distance, as something that is 
detached and isolated entities that are viewed alongside each other, that act independently of each other, and that are commensurable as detached entities. So we measure them relative to each other. Whereas the relationship between male and female is, as I've argued, a charged bond between them in which each of the terms can only be understood properly as they are held in relationship to each other. And so the misleading tendencies that we have when we come to these texts with our individualistic assumptions from modern society, there's a considerable impact that that has upon the way that we read this. So if we're reading this as individuals, that God creates these sets of individuals, some male, some female, we're all fundamentally individuals in his image. There's something missed there about the structure of humanity, this charged bond that exists between male and female, and the way that that structures the world, the way that it structures time, the way that it structures human society. So I've seen, for instance, there's this argument going around in some circles for a very transgender argument and um, intersex reading of these passage, passages, saying male and female, he created them. It's like the extremes, and then all these other things as well. He created um, demigenders, and he created agenders, and he created aromantics, and all these other things that um, they're all, it's just a plurality of detached individual entities. But what God has created here is a charged bond that gives orientation and a structure to the whole, a magnetic polarity to creation that helps us find our bearings, that orients the reality within its dance. And all of this relates to the calling that we have been given within the world. The calling, as I've argued, has a progressive movement within it from being fruitful to being multiplying, to multiplying, to filling the earth, to subduing it, to exercising dominion over its creatures. This is already a calling that is weighted very differently for men and women. When you think about women's role, particularly within an early society, the weight of multiplication and being fruitful falls more upon women in a way that it doesn't upon men. Men's role within that can be very short, and it can be that support for that role is significant, but it's not something that they have so much power within or so much significance within. That role of multiplication and fruitfulness and filling is one that falls far more upon the woman, although the man is involved. On the other hand, the task of dominion is something that, particularly within a society where physical labor requires a lot of human strength, is one that falls primarily upon the man. Now, how does this help us to understand um, human relationships? One of the things that I think is important to recognize here is that this pattern is related to God's own pattern of creation. The forming is related to God's acts of the first three days, and that dominion and subduing of the creation, of this structuring, dividing, naming, taming, ordering and forming gives us the fundamental structures that can then be filled, glorified, that can have a communion established within them, a future that they're oriented and pushed into. And so there's already a pattern set up. There are already rhythms set up. And there are already a way in which our activity in creation is a reflection of God's own activity in creation. And this pattern of forming and filling is something that you see more generally in Scripture. So if you think about the work of Christ, 
The work of Christ is primarily a work of forming, naming, taming, structuring, ordering, dividing. It's a, a exercising dominion over the power of Satan, a conquest. It's an act of deliverance. It's an act of dividing and forming this fundamental structure. But the role of the Spirit is one of filling, the one of perfection, the one of glorifying, the one of establishing communion, of establishing life, of generating. And when we think about men and women in Scripture, it's not surprising, it should not be something that we miss, that the work of the Spirit is so often related to the work of women. This is not an accident. So if you're looking through Scripture, the Spirit is the one who begets us anew. We are regenerated by the Spirit, begotten by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one by whom Christ is conceived in the womb of Mary. The Spirit is the one who stands with the bride and says, Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit is the one by whom the bride is prepared. The Spirit is the one who establishes the communion of the church. The Spirit is the one who establishes God's home with us. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The Spirit is the one who gives the future and the Spirit is the one who perfects and who glorifies. And so these are not accidental patterns. This dynamic within God's own creation is something that establishes the pattern for the creation of humankind, that this should be continued and lived out within our lives more generally. And so the relationship between men and women is not just a division of labor, um, in the sense that women do all the filling, men do all the forming. That's not how it works. There's an interplay here. And so just as we've seen within the creation account, these different forms of creation work that are nonetheless bound together, the forming and the filling are intertwined, but sometimes one comes to the fore and the other comes recedes to the background. So we see within human work within the world, there is this, these occasions when certain activities come to the foreground and others go to the background, but these things are never detached from each other. If you think about the work of Christ, for instance, at every single stage of the work of Christ, the Spirit is intimately involved. The Spirit is the one by whom he is conceived in the womb of Mary. The Spirit is the one by whom he is baptized in the Jordan, the one by whom he is transfigured on the Mount, the one by whom he gives up his Spirit. He's the one in whom he's raised from the dead by the power of the Father. He's the one by whom he will, in whose glory he will come, he will come on the last. And so, in each of these occasions, the work of Christ and the Spirit can't be separated. Christ is the anointed one. That's his identity. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, the one who is sent by Christ, the one who is the Spirit of Christ that is given to his church. And so there's that connection there as well. And in thinking about human relationships, we are not just we are not just reflecting the Trinity in some sort of the eternal life of the Trinity and taking that as our model. What we're seeing primarily here is the pattern of God's creation. That's the pattern that we have. Not a pattern that is throwing things back into the Trinity and thinking about how God eternally relates. Of course, that is a foundation for the way God works in the world. But what we're seeing about is our relationship to God's own creative activity. That's a continuation. It's a filling out of what God has established at the beginning. Now, I want to give some thought just towards the end of this on something that we tend to ignore when we go through the creation account, which is the significance of the animals. 
why do we have so much emphasis upon the animals within the creation account? And I think one of the reasons why, one of our problems, as we fail to give attention to the animals, we fail to see something about our place within the creation. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So the creation does not, is not given to humanity alone. It's given to the creatures, to the animals. It's a commons that we are supposed to share with them. And it's a commodious commons. It's one that is spacious and rich. And it is a realm of fullness that's supposed to be shared. It's not just something that is given to humanity as a despot to rule over, to have a control over that um, will uproot these other animals or treat them as means, merely means for our ends. The animals have a title to the creation too. And the commons of creation, which we as human beings have been given a particular responsibility within and a power over, it must be used and served with recognition that we are not its sole dependence. The creation has been given to all of us and we depend upon the creation, not just human beings, but animals as well. And when we get this orientation to the creation, I think as we go on in our discussion, it will become a bit more apparent why this is significant for thinking about the relationship between men and women. Animals are also our helpers and our teachers. If you want to learn how to, the food that we are to eat, the places to find water, the um, Moral lessons, if you want to understand who we are within the world, throughout the Old Testament, human life is mapped onto animal life. Humans are called to go to the animals to learn these moral lessons, go to the ant you sluggard. Or describing human beings as animals. I mean, you can talk about brute beasts at times, that we become hardened, we become brutish in our response. There are other times when we can see the relationship between the high priest and the bull, or we can see the relationship between the leader of the people and the goat, that there's some analogy there that should be explored and unpacked, and it will help us to understand who these things, how we relate to the animal kingdom, how we relate to God, and how we fit into the broader choreography of creation. Animals are also our charges. They're given to us as creatures that we must take care of that we have a responsibility to exercise dominion over them, but that dominion has to be a provident dominion, one that provides for them the needs that they have, that gives them the space that they need to live, and that gives them access to the resources, that makes the world a home that is suited for animal and for human use alike. And finally, animals are a source of delight. If you read the great creation psalms, if you read something like Job, you'll see the description of animals as God's playthings. God has created these animals to give us some sense, as it were, of God's relationship to his creation, of God's relationship also to us. As we see ourselves in the mirror of the animals, we can get some inkling of how God relates to us, of the compassion that he shows for us, of the pity that he takes upon us and the delight that he takes in us. 
that we are really strange beasts after all. We have these very, we are very animal creatures. We are rational animals indeed, but we are animals. We have strange habits. We have this body that isn't completely cooperative. We have this rootedness in this realm of flesh that we are not ghosts dwelling in corpses. We are people who are deeply embedded in this realm of the body. We are people who eat. We are people who defecate. We are people who have sex. We have people who have this rootedness in this realm that we share with the animals. And to understand ourselves in terms of the animals, it tells us something about ourselves. While at the same time recognizing our distinction from the animals, that human beings are set over against the creation, the rest of the animal creation, as a distinct act of creation on the sixth day, that creation of the animals and the beasts of the field and birds, birds of the air on the fifth day and the fish of the seas, and then as an act of special creation of God's deliberative statement, let us make, God, let us make man in our own image, and then later on his explicit formation of man out of the dust of, and the breathing into him the breath of life, a very hands-on vision of creation, this is something that sets us apart from the animals, but not in ways that detaches us from them. As we think of animals as sources of delight, we will understand the creation more generally as a realm of fullness, of beauty, of life and vitality, not just a realm of things and resources to be used and exercised power over, but a realm to be enjoyed, enjoyed, to be held with an open hand. And then finally... We have the description of the Sabbath as a day of rest, this capstone day, the day that completes the whole sequence, stepping back from it and declaring everything to be good. So we've seen the goodness of the unique entities within the creation. Now we see the goodness of the whole as it's established as a unified entity. And this is a day of rest, a day not merely to put down the tools, but a day to delight in what has been done a day to rest in the labors. Um, as the Sabbath day is established for the people of God, it's established as a day to rest in their labors, to, on the foundation of what they have done on the first six days, to find completion and fulfillment and to find an experience of enjoyment of what they have done, a completion of what they have done. It's related to those other days. It's not just completely detached from them. As we'll see later, this sequence is significant for understanding marriage, that marriage is, to some extent, mapped onto the Sabbath day. We're going to take a break now for another five minutes, and we'll come back and we'll get into Genesis chapter 2 and 3.